It's TED Talks Daily. I'm Elise Hugh. Today's talk is a must-listen about shame and identity, something we can probably all relate to. It's a personal account from the author and drag queen Kristal Rasmussen, who grew up gay, plus-size, and feminine, without role models who looked like them. Rasmussen's journey to self-acceptance offers lessons for the rest of us, no matter which categories we're slotted into. These days, I find it easy to look in the mirror. This used to be the case, too, because I learned to be a drag queen alone. Back then, in the early noughties, there was no cultural mirror for someone like me. There was no chance of switching on Netflix and finding someone who looked like you. And Lily Savage never quite made it to the Woolworths bargain bin, if she ever made it to the dizzying heights of VHS at all. So there was me and a mirror. And that's the only place I saw myself for a long time. It would be over a decade until this part of me became more than a mere reflection. And in that time, what happened would change my relationship with that mirror. In that decade, I came out as gay at a Catholic state comp in the working-class Northwest, and I survived. <clears throat> But as with anything that unsmooths the edges of normal society, that coming out brought with it a daily dose of judgment and therein shame from almost everyone around me, a shame that was heard and felt and internalized and often replicated by me. Commonly, when we think about shame, we imagine it at the extreme end of the spectrum. Anything from years of intense dieting to keep up with extreme Western beauty standards, all the way to things like honor violence. But for me, my shame existed at the long end of the tail of the shame monster, as self-hatred. Now, this didn't really affect anyone else. On the surface, I was fat, feminine, gay, spotty, ginger. I didn't really have much going for me by society standards. But what I did have was a killer, if not overcompensatory, bitchy gay personality, and I was not afraid to use it. If you're going to throw a rock at me and call me a fagger, then I'll barb you back by telling you that one day when I'm famous, you'll be licking my boots clean and begging me for employment. We all reproduce shameful and shaming behaviors because we're all trying to escape our own shame. And as the shame monster swallowed me whole, I couldn't find myself in the mirror. Eventually, I left my hometown and went to a rather posh university that my whole town had celebrated my acceptance at with glee. And when I arrived there, I started to tell lies about my upbringing. Not big ones. There's only so many vowels you can drop until someone realizes you're not landed gentry. But I started to say things like, I'd read that book when I hadn't. And I started to tell people I'd grown up in Manchester when really it was two hours north of there. I spent time alone in the mirror like I had with my drag persona all those years ago, trying to change the way I speak just a little. To the world, I was easy. I worked hard to fit myself into a neat storyline, the friendly gay Mancunian, when really I knew that the swathing complexities of my identity couldn't fit inside a storyline. And if I was found out, I was terrified that I'd be cast out. And so the self-hate ensued once again. <clears throat> Now, what does self-hate look like? What does it feel like? It sounds pretty intense, but it's actually way more boring and way less dramatic than vile gouts of hatred towards who you are. 
For me, self-hatred was about not believing things that were objectively true. It was about looking in the mirror and seeing something monstrous. It was about looking in the mirror and seeing something not deserving of love or respect from myself and others. It was about looking in the mirror and wanting to change parts of myself, my weight, my gender, my sexuality, my class, so extremely that you commit to acts of self-harm and self-denial. I lied, I judged, I bitched, I changed the way I spoke, and I had so much extreme sex that I would find myself years later recalling all the times my consent had been breached because it's what I thought I deserved. Sidebar to say that extreme sex, when practiced safely and consensually, can be some of the best sex. But as my grandma would have said, I was in a pickle. I looked in the mirror and I saw something monstrous, but I'd managed to persuade those around me that I was fabulous. The first time I performed in drag, I was 19, and to put it lightly, I was not fabulous. But so was everyone, and the standard back then in 2011 was much lower than it is now. And, you know, the people of my repressed generation were just pretty happy to see something different. But as bad as I might have been, this experience was such a liberatory process, something that Oprah might have called an aha moment. Because for the first time, this thing I'd only ever really seen in a mirror was real. She was tangible, and what's more, she was adored by a crowd of people. Drag continued this way for a while, until the barrier between the mirror and the real world faded away. I had admitted my most shameful desires to the world, and somewhere in some pockets of some worlds that I never knew existed, she was adored. So I started to drop my vowels more, I started to talk about Lancaster more, I started to wear ball gowns in the street, and I started to fall back in love with what I saw in the mirror. Eventually, everyone around me followed suit, my friends, my family, my lovers. She became a place of value and of power and of uplift. She became what she'd been in the mirror all those years ago, a savior. So I did what anyone who found their power source would do, and I leaned in, as arch-capitalist Sheryl Sandberg would say, and I journeyed to the heart of the queer motherland, East London. There I had queer sex, I made queer friends, I wore queer clothes, worshipping at the feet of the northern women who raised me, and be celebrated for it. It's kind of a wild thing to get your head around, the idea of being celebrated for something you were so painfully derided for before. But my journey to shamelessness was not over. Funny how years of deep embedded circuitry takes a little while to untangle. See, I'd made this bubble, this shame-free bubble, where everything about me was celebrated. And one night, on the way home from a gig in drag, I was beat so badly that I was hospitalized by a homophobic passerby. The shame flooded out of my internal boxes and filled me up. I went to so many dark places in my head, I'm loath to repeat them, but I asked myself questions like, what if everyone who's ever said anything bad about me was right? What if I deserve all of this shame? I had some work to do, and I was a bit too shaken to stay around in London, so I took a train from Euston back home to Lancaster, and I spent some time healing. And I worked hard to fall in love with the things I thought I'd left behind, the things I'd loved about Lancaster growing up, the people there, the way we connect, Jan down the spa shop who sells fags, 
the boys who give you a bit of a look but respect you nonetheless. And I came back to London with more of an awareness of my value, of my history. I had been dressing differently since the attack. I was wearing all black, plain clothes, trying to blend in. Because when I was at home in Lancaster, I realized that safety was more important to me than curing myself of shame, and I can't do the latter if I don't have the former. But while I was up in Lancaster, I'd also had another realization. I realized that everybody suffers with shame, even my attacker. This was another aha moment, a moment so liberatory that it confused me for a while. The fact that I wasn't alone in this, that everyone suffers from shame. Normality is God and everyone's a sinner, I realized. I got obsessed with it. I started looking everywhere and seeing shame in people's behaviors, from their silence to their violence, from their gender reveal parties to their big white weddings. Even my attacker. He was so filled with shame because of what masculinity had done to him that upon seeing my difference, he lashed out at me with his fists. Rather than curing my shame, I had to work hard to reimagine it as something that we all carry around with us, like little pebbles attached to our back in a rucksack. It's something that affects us all, that causes harm in us all, and causes us to perpetuate harm outwards to others too. I also realized I was existing at a complicated interplay of narcissism, self-hate, and shame too, where I wanted everyone to accept everything about me. And until then, until that moment, I would see something monstrous in the mirror. But I realized that I don't need everyone to accept everything about me. Jan down the spa shop who sells fags has way bigger problems than my gender, my class, my sexuality. She's got her own shame to deal with. But what we do need, what I need, is the ability to live safely. The ability to walk down the street in drag and not have some homophobic passerby do what he did to me. And the way we do that is by doing some shame work. It's about looking inside and realizing that all the boxes that have been put there by the world are a lie. All the things that you've had to shave off to make yourself smooth, bring them back. There's power there, there's value there, there's beauty there. Shame work is social work. It's time we all did a bit. These days, I find it easy to look in the mirror. Hey, I'm Dr. Jen Gunter, host of a podcast from TED called Body Stuff. I'm a doctor, and on this show, I debunk medical myths by exploring how the body works and some of the surprising cultural backstories behind the medicine. Next up, what does milk really do for our bones? Milk's a really fraught food. Listen to Body Stuff with Dr. Jen Gunter on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.